Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 152 of Love That Album Podcast, proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. My name's Morris. Thank you so much for joining us. And this time around, I have a fellow podcaster and musician. He is the host of not one, not two, but three, three fine podcasts, I tell you people. One of them is called Film Gold. One of them is Life and Life Only. The podcast that first got my attention was his show called Glass Onion on John Lennon. The host of all three of these podcasts is a man called Anthony Rattuno. Welcome to Love That Album, Anthony. Hey, Morris. Thanks for having me on. I was going to start a fourth podcast just to catch you out. No, <laughs> I, think three, I think three is enough. Thanks for that introduction. Thank you for the uh, entertainment that you've given me for so many months. It's been absolutely wonderful. And I've also heard you on as a guest on a couple of other shows in particular, you've done a couple of shows with our good friend Scott Phipps over at Stinking Paws. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! We're going to be talking about Nick Drake and his album Five Leaves Left, plus the rest of his output and his life and all that sort of thing. That's what's coming up. But before we do that, please let the listeners know 
what your three podcasts are actually all about. Okay, so Glass Onion on John Lennon is the first one I started, uh, just coming up for three years ago now. Obviously about John Lennon, but there's lots of General Beatles shows, General Beatles episodes, I should say. I think what marks it out slightly is I often use John Lennon as a sort of a jump-off point for talking about other things that I'm interested in, such as uh, politics, society, and particularly psychology. So I kind of market it, if that's the word, as, as a look at a deep dive into the music and psychology of John Lennon and for ages I was thinking oh you know you can't keep going for more than about a year maybe on one person but you know now it's three years and since I'm soon to join Pantheon as well you heard it here first folks Anthony is going to be on the Pantheon podcast network coming up very very soon so look for him there yeah, and you're instrumental in that, by the way, as well. I just wrote down off the top of my head a, a load of topics, and I've got loads and loads of people that are waiting, and I keep delaying because I've got these other two shows. Anyway, to <laughs> cut it short, yeah, it's a deep dive into John Lennon. Uh, Life and Life Only is really, I mean, the the, the lyric, you might recognise it as a Bob Dylan lyric, but it's got, just to, in case it's uh, not clear, it's nothing to do with Bob Dylan. It's a very eclectic podcast. I call it a podcast about life. Uh, so, you know, you've got a fairly uh, good selection. You can't really go wrong with life. I kind of call it a search for inner and outer truth. So the inner truth is self-development. I'm transitioning to be a life coach. So there's a little bit of that there in psychology. The outer truth is kind of alternative media because I don't generally believe what I read on the news so or, or anywhere, really. <laughs> I tend to be quite skeptical. And then film gold is obviously about films veering towards kind of classic. My favorite period is sort of 1970s New Hollywood, Hollywood realism, some people call it. Some people call it the paranoia era. I'd call it the realism era myself. <laughs> and then uh, I've had a couple of modern ones because my niece, Olivia, got in touch. And of course, you can't refuse your niece when she says, can I be on your show? So we did the social network, which I enjoyed. It was great. We haven't done any yet, but I imagine there'll be some Hitchcock and Orson Welles in there. We just did a two-parter on Marlon Brando as well, who's by far my favorite actor. And I think the most compelling him and John Lennon, I would consider perhaps, in my opinion, the most compelling sort of cultural figures. But that's just my opinion. So, yeah, it's my three shows. I'm presuming that you've gone and read Easy Rider Raging Bulls. I was just going to say that, yeah, because some people actually call that period. Scott and I call it that, the Easy Riders Raging Bulls period. Yes. And there's a book, in, and in fact, a documentary called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, and another one called A Decade Under the Influence, which is a great title because it's obviously got a double meaning because there was lots of alcohol and coke <laughs> going around. But, yeah, I love that period. Yeah, it's brilliant. We're here to talk about... About Nick Drake's 1969 album Five Leaves Left. Before we do that, we're going to go to a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll be back to talk about Nick Drake's approach to folk music, the general scene and his album Five Leaves Left. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 152. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com Dot com, or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion.
lived in a shed Spent most of his days out of his head And we're back from break. Morris over here, Anthony over there. And we're here to talk about Nick Drake's album, Five Leaves Left. Came out in 1969 on Island Records. I'd love to know, what was your introduction to Nick Drake? Now, when we started talking about doing an album together, this was your suggestion. Do you recall the first time that you heard Nick Drake? Well, it's interesting, actually, because uh, I came pretty late to the party. I'd say it was only about 10 years ago. And I mean, I'm in my mid-40s, so that's quite late. I never knew really anything about him when I was a, a teenager or in my early 20s. I don't know if you ever find this, but there'll be times when people will keep mentioning musicians to you over a period of years and you never quite get there. And of course, at a certain time, there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't Spotify or ever. So it wasn't so easy. And people just constantly mention Nick Drake and Nick Cave to the point where Nick Cave's obviously a countryman of yours to the point where I got confused, which was which. But then I finally got there and I'll tell you what it was. It was actually an album called Family Tree, which chronologically was a perfect start because it came out in 2007, but it's basically the home demos of Nick Drake in the two years before he made Five Leaves Left. So Five Leaves Left is 69, so this is 67, 68. But it's interesting because most of it is covers and a lot of it is blues. And I think maybe the the untapped thing with Nick Drake, people think of him as folk. I would argue after spending, I mean, by the way, I've spent about the last three days almost having total immersion because I reread the biography by Patrick Humphries, which was fantastic. I listened to the albums and I was so inspired that I ended up writing a blog post. I sent to you and you sensibly didn't read before we do this because otherwise, you know, it would have given too much away. But I was so inspired. So, yeah, so this is sort of blues thing and and what was interesting with nick drake there's lots of interesting juxtapositions for example of let's say fatalistic lyrics but quite an uplifting tune and one of them was him doing lots of blues songs singing in a very english accent and then you actually hear some audio of him and he's very posh you know he's everything's like one this oh one is rather tired and one is this (laughs) it's very funny one has one's reservations one has quite enjoyed oneself but but one has to make reservations because um people are particularly interesting. In fact, there, there weren't as many people there as I, ex- I expected there to be, because I thought, you know, the Maynard Mitchells have, have a big, big do. But that was a good introduction, because that was pre the albums. And then obviously, you know, I can't remember what sparked it off. I think it was the documentary I'd like to recommend to your listeners called A Skin Too Few, which you can find on, on YouTube. And it's absolutely fantastic. Sometimes you, you listen to someone's work for ages. And then when you see it in a certain context, like it's used in a film, or in this case, you've got people telling the story, and then you hear the music, and then it just absolutely clicks. And that from then I listened to his three albums. And as I was telling you just before we started recording, I was saying they're almost like three children in that they're all different. And you, I personally can't pick a favorite because I love them all for very different reasons. So the first, just very briefly, so the first one's got some instrumentation. The second one is a real attempt at a commercial pop album. Then the third one is completely stripped down. So they're all different. So really over the last few years, it's just reading books and a couple of great documentaries and just love it. And the guy is just, you know, the story, just touches me very deeply it's very tragic Mm. but the music is strangely uplifting there's very little actual depressing music i would argue the third album a bit but that's not the one we're talking about tonight i don't think i ever got around to hearing that family tree album i think aside from one song which perfectly encapsulates i think his whole career i think he did a cover version of jackson frank's blues run the game now that's on that album right absolutely yes yes catch a boat to england baby 
bitter Spain Wherever I have gone Wherever I've been and gone Wherever I've gone The blues are the same That song in some ways encapsulates how at least his lyrical approach, I wouldn't necessarily, it's an uplifting melody, but it's not a really down melody either. It's it's sort Mm. of fairly jaunty, but that's a very depressing lyric. And I only recently Mm. was listening to a Patreon episode of the history of rock music in 500 songs. He did like a 15 minute discussion on Jackson C. Frank's life. And that guy had it rough. He really had it rough. I recommend Mm. people go out and do a bit of a read and listen to that song. I'm not going to spoil anything, but he had a really, really tough life. So when he sings Blues Run the Game, that is from a position of life is shit. And trust me, I've been living it. Can I just say about Nick Drake, that certainly was not true up to, uh, you know, I mean, he died in 74. This album we're talking about is 69. It was from about 71 that the, the, the rot started to set in. But he was a person who was born with all the advantages in the world. Very, very loving family. His sister became a famous actress and very loving family. And he had he had all the advantages in the world, and he was fairly, I would say, fairly happy up to about 1971. So, you know, he certainly wasn't born into poverty or anything like that. Quite the opposite. But we'll, we'll come on to what happened to him, I guess, later. But mm. he certainly, you know, he had all the advantages in the world to begin with. So I written on a so it say. introduction to Nick Drake was also fairly late. I'd say it would probably have been in my, I don't know, mid to late 30s, where I picked up a copy of the CD Way to Blue, an introduction to the music of Nick Drake. So I think Island Records were doing this series of a wide range of their artists, uh, and they curated them really beautifully with some uh, lovely liner notes. I know that there's a Richard and Linda album out there, and I can't remember what else is. So I got the Nick Drake one, like you, I'd heard the name. I think maybe even my nephew had said to me at the time, you've got to check this guy out. He's absolutely wonderful. If you love Jeff Buckley, you should give listen to Nick Drake and in some ways the two of them seem like kindred spirits I mean you know Jeff Buckley's music was quite different to Nick Drake's where you can sort of imagine that Jeff Buckley would have been a big big fan of Nick Drake's music the other one I'd say sorry is Elliot Smith as well if there's any listeners who are Elliot Elliot Smith fans they're more than likely to love Nick Drake as well again it's not necessarily similar music but there's some kinship yeah unlike say Jeff Buckley but Elliot Smith and Nick Drake certainly I think they had inner demons but also just purely from a musical perspective the two of them had a beautiful breathy sort of vocal approach to what they did but coming back to this compilation I just bought it I didn't even ask to listen to anything I thought right I'll take a chance seeing that both Richard Thompson and Danny Thompson not related two of my musical idols were musicians in Nick Drake's life I thought right that's good enough for me and the first song in that anthology is a song that we'll talk about in a bit more detail later on but it's cello song and I think the 
last time that a song completely hypnotized me that much was when I first heard Richard Thompson for the first time. The very first song of his I ever heard was Al Bowley's In Heaven. Al Bowley's In Heaven is telling a story, is telling a narrative. And I think that Richard Thompson, as I've gone and said on this podcast quite a lot of times, and I say in the Facebook group quite a lot of times, he's not only my favorite musician, but he's my favorite storyteller. But the music just absolutely hypnotized me. And that's what cello song did for me. Anyway, so I came home and I played this album over and over again over the years. And it wasn't until like maybe the last few years that I actually thought, you know, it's one thing to have this great anthology, but I really should go out and get the original albums. I'm surprised at myself that I didn't actually go out and get the three albums proper a whole lot sooner. But I'm not one of these people who says anthologies are a waste of time. I know some people say, oh, if you're a real fan, you buy the proper albums. I, I I don't, mm. I don't subscribe to that theory. I do like a good anthology, and sometimes that is all you need. But in Nick Drake's case, it wasn't all I needed. This was something that <laughs> I wanted to have the full back catalogue of. And as you say, every album is different, and we will get to those stylistic differences. As you've gone and said, you have just immersed yourself in Nick Drake over the last few days, reading the Patrick Humphreys biography. I, about three months ago, I read a different book. A guy called Trevor Dan had written a book called Darker Than the Deepest Sea, The Search for Nick Drake. Because I came to this not really knowing anything about his life. You know, I, I didn't know that he'd been born to, well, not necessarily to privilege, but certainly solid middle-class background. And he'd lived this life where, as you say, he, he'd had a, a loving family and he got along very well with his sister. She was a very big part of his life. But he seemed to be very quiet, very reserved, and he had a fear of talking to people. Now, as Robert Kirby has said in public, and we'll talk about Robert Kirby as well, who he was, he'd gone and said, look, all these people have this impression that all his life he was this miserable chap. But in fact, I knew him and he had a lot of joy in him. There were a lot of moments where mm. he, he laughed solidly and he was as much fun to be with as anyone was. But as he lived his life, as he went on, he had fears. He was very private. He didn't know how to talk to people. He didn't know how to perform in front of people. So he definitely had mental health issues, which had he been around today, it might have been very, very different. But it also struck yeah. me that reading this book, his story is very similar in some ways to the story of two other acts who I absolutely adore and we've actually discussed on this show. One is Judy Sill and the band Big Star, both artists who are revered by people who know them, but not enough people know them. I mean, I, I guess more people mm. know Big Star nowadays. I think there's been a solid movement, but not enough people got into Judy Sill, in my opinion, and certainly not enough people got into Nick Drake at the time. Mm. You've read his biography more recently than I. You read a different one, but what was your takeaway from his life? This was not the typical biography of a musician who shot to fame, took a hell of a lot of drugs and was then redeemed. Yeah, it's very difficult to say, but I've been a, a lover of psychology all my life. I studied it at college and I've read tons and tons of books, so I, I kind of come from that angle. It's very, very interesting uh, when I was reading this Patrick Humphreys book to trace when the warning signs came, you know, because really, basically, there were no warning signs until about 1967. What happened was him and I think it was Jeremy Mason who was immortalizing the song Three Hours, you know, mm -hmm. three hours from London, Jeremy me flies that's jeremy mason friend of his 
they went to a place called Aix en Provence in France and Nick really loved France that was a sort of thing that continued in his through his short life and I think Nick got into cannabis and got into LSD as well now I'm from kind of the Joe Rogan school of cannabis in that I don't think there's anything too bad about having it occasionally the way you might have a glass of wine or some whiskey or something now obviously LSD is a different thing and I think Jeremy Mason said there were a few warning signs and also Nick played music to, he went to Marlborough College and then he went to Cambridge University but he was actually playing piano sax and maybe clarinet as well and then he took up the guitar and there's rumours I think jokingly of him sort of selling his soul to the devil because his friends just couldn't believe how well he played the guitar and one of them in this documentary said just watching him it was he, he said it was moving you know and this is even before Nick Drake had done anything he became Robert Johnson yeah in the sense, in the sense that he, he just picked up the guitar I mean I'm sure he worked very diligently and those kind of characters those sort of introspective characters they're more likely to obsessively play you know maybe 10 12 hours a day however much it was but the, you know there were a few warning signs and, and Jeremy Mason said he got a bit more intense so I think had it gone another way had he I don't know never smoked a joint or had he not become a musician it's quite likely he might have had a fairly normal life I don't think he was doomed I think the lyrics on this album that we're going to talk about they might give a slightly false impression because Nick was studying the romantic poets you know Keats and Wordsworth and so forth and he, he definitely did buy into this sort of fatalistic poet thing but before he'd actually lived any of it you know he was so young when he made this album so it was more of a kind of romantic image and the thing about Nick Drake is that anyone will tell you that knew him he looked just fabulous you know he had the image he didn't even need to open his mouth and he didn't open his mouth when he played gigs he never once addressed the audience apparently but he had the image perfectly you know he was he was good looking he had these wonderful long flowing straight locks he was sort of quite skinny. He was quite pale. He, he just looked like a, a poet or looked like a star. He had the image down. I think through a series of things, like he was ambitious, but in those days you had to gig. You know, there was no internet. You had to gig. Otherwise, no one knew anything about your records. And Island Records were quite sympathetic and they tried hard. Maybe some people have said they didn't market him well enough. I don't know about that. But basically he spiraled fairly quickly after the second album. So it, was, it really was a combination of things. There may have been psychological problems anyway, but there's nothing in his past really to suggest that, apart from the fact that he was sort of at times sort of maybe supernaturally shy, you know, um, just more shy than you'd imagine a person should be. But as you said, you know, there's, there's a couple of audio tapes of him there's one funny one he's coming it's actually five in the morning he says into the tape oh it's uh, 25 to five and i've uh, he's obviously come back from sort of a boozy night out but he's not very quiet but he sounds quite cheerful but i think he was just later on people mentioned you know autism or asperger's i think it's more i don't think he had those conditions but i think sort of that shyness plus being swallowed up by the music industry plus weed plus lsd possibly you know there's even talk of heroin as well in this book and um, mm. there is some evidence that he was at least interested in trying it I think, to be honest, it's, it's just all those things together, plus the antidepressants he was put on. I mean, who the hell knows what causes what? Who can know the thoughts of Mary Jane? Why she flies or goes out in the rain? Where she's been and who she's seen? 
he had these perfectly written songs at the very outset. There was no, to my ears anyway, lengthy development, at least not in a recorded sense. He hit Island Records running straight away with Five Leaves Left, the album we're eventually going to get to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And with this, to my ears, a perfect album. I mean, I know there are some people who say, oh, it's a stepping stone to brighter later, but I think that these were perfectly developed songs right from the outset. He knew exactly what he wanted how he wanted them produced. He was not anyone's doormat. That's the impression I certainly got from the Darker Than the Deepest Sea book. He wanted a successful music career. But beyond that point in his life, as you were saying, where he started taking drugs, the book made the point that he was smoking excessively. He couldn't talk to anyone either for friendship or for publicity. So the one or two interviews that he was forced into doing were an, an absolute disaster. And he couldn't perform on stage. So that's on the negative side. As, as you suggest there, Anthony, it may be something to do with the excessive use of pot or heroin or whatever it was. But even in the earlier part of the book, it says, yeah, he got into things and he liked having friends, but he was still very, very private. So it was his nature combined with his drug use. A lot of people are hindsight experts. Oh, yes. Well, it was obvious from his lyrics that he was going to do himself in. But as you say, he had studied the great poets. He was very, very well read. And there's a certain romanticism to writing about the, the dark side of life. There's a song, Fruit Tree, where... Nick sings about wanting fame is a very shallow pursuit and what good will it do you when you're dead? Yet he wanted people to buy his record, which would be a result of fame. Fame is but a fruit tree So very unsound It can never flourish Till its stock is in the ground So men of fame Never find a way till time has flown far from their dying day. Of course, his non-action in promoting himself would seem to align himself more with that song's actual stated philosophy. He was a complete contradiction. But the armchair experts would say, well, yeah, that's him to a T. But once again, it could be just artistic license because that's what the great mm. poets would have sang about. He wanted fame, at least according to the books. They would have gotten that information from people like Robert Kirby, who knew him probably better than most. As you say, the further he went on, the harder things got for him. Yeah, it became real. I mean, he definitely wasn't pretending from about 1971. It was happening for real. And of course, he died. You know, we can't say he was living out some dream because it happened for real, as you said. No, 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 no. I want to read something out here. Now, this appeared in the biography that I read. I'm not sure if, if you read this in the Patrick Humphreys book, but mm. I read about this and you can find this on the net, the lengthier version. But by the time Nick got round to recording his third album, Pink Moon, which no one at Ireland expected. He recorded it mm. over two nights. John Wood, the producer, didn't expect him to come rolling into the studio and say, hey, I've got a bunch of songs I want to record. Everyone thought that was it. Two albums that both stiffed. He's not going to do anything. He's too shy. But he came up with this final bunch of songs. So yeah. the most unusual publicity campaign, if you want to call it that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, this gone. Go okay, on. all right. So uh, I'm, I'm going to read a, a few sentences from this. Not the whole thing, but this is fascinating. So the Island ad for Pink Moon stated... 
why, when there are people prepared to do anything for a recording contract, are we releasing this new Nick Drake album? And that was Pink Moon that you're talking about. Because we believe that Nick Drake is a great talent. His first two albums haven't sold shit. But if we carry on releasing them, maybe one day someone in authority will stop to listen to them and agree with us. And maybe people will buy a lot of records and fulfill our faith in Nick's promise. I don't think I've ever read a a PR pack like that. It's incredibly honest because Ireland did give him every chance. I mean, this is years later. It's like, we'll give you one single. That flops right, you're off. He had three albums on Ireland, none of which sold anything, and he refused to go out and tour that wasn't his thing he was just as we've been saying all along incredibly shy he panicked he was fearful Mm. he couldn't do it particularly with the first two albums his champion was joe boyd now joe boyd was a very important figure in his life and very important figure in that time to english folk music because he was instrumental behind fairport convention and i think it was they said that fairport convention connection that got him to meet joe boyd which got him on ireland he was discovered at the roundhouse by ashley hutchings who was the bass player for fairport yeah he was weirdly enough actually he was supporting country joe and the fish which is quite strange <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't really connect those two but then he did uh, the royal festival hall as support with fairport but if i in a second if i could just talk about his gigging yeah go no, go that. for it go for it go now yeah yeah sure now there's a, there's a little bit of a misconception that he there's some legend that he only ever did like two gigs the best we know he did something like two dozen which isn't many obviously you know 25 let's say 30 he did actually do a couple in the north so he went as far as liverpool and hull so he did sort of tour in the loosest sense his sister takes a lot of issue with the idea that he never liked performing because she said it's part of the illness because he used to perform at cambridge some of the fascinating stuff in this book is people like ralph mattel and john martin they're talking about the folk club scene and the university scene is pretty harsh it's pretty unforgiving you know ralph mattel for example used to do 200 gigs a year and he used to drive himself in a sort of battered car up and down the country you know and sometimes you get sort of boozy audiences and i think some people think the gig that finished nick drake off was one in coventry with john martin and it was essentially a load of sort of boozy students mm. who were looking for sort of a sing-along. And, you know, Nick Drake is the, is the last person you go and see <laughs> if, you, if you want some catchy choruses. Because Nick, as you said, I mean, he, as far as I know, he never in those 25 gigs even once addressed the audience. The most he would do, he would lift his guitar up, he'd sort of wave his guitar to them as he came off. <laughs> So I would probably challenge the idea that he was never able to perform, but I think he just got swallowed up. Because I think the more I think of it and reading this book, I think there are certain people who do okay when they're a teenager or when they're in early 20s, but when real life, quote unquote, and to be honest, I would have put myself in this camp when I was in my 20s as well. When real life comes knocking, you can't quite handle it. You know, you're all right with adolescence. And there's almost a tiny bit of arrested development going on. And I think he just got swallowed up and all those insecurities you're talking about, they were always there, but they just got accentuated. Mm. Fruit Tree, actually, Joe Boyd sees that as a very prescient because you've got famous but a true fruit tree but very unsound it can never flourish till it's stark is in the stalk is in the ground safe in your place deep in the earth that's when they'll know what you're really worth so he's almost like predicting what happened but i don't buy that i 
don't think Nick Drake knew what was going to happen. I think up to about 1970, he was up for a music career and then it sort of went sour. Pink Moon was at 71, I think that was the final. It came out, it came out at the beginning of 72, but it was recorded beginning at the end of 72. Of 72. It's not like this is my farewell to the earth, farewell, I'm going bye bye. No. He was still around for another two years. It was pretty miserable two years, but he was still on the planet. So I think, yeah, it's all too easy to sort of read too much into this and I, I do like the point that you've made and they talk about in some length in the books about him being a reader of English I think I mean that's what he did at University yeah. at Cambridge he was a lover of that sort of romantic poetry so he's just a follower in that tradition as it were I wanted to diverge for a few minutes and talk about the music itself because that's I guess what we're here for but <laughs> yeah yeah you already sort of made the point at the start that the three albums are like three different children but they're very obviously all part of the same family. They all sound like Nick Drake. There's no album that sounds like, oh, that's a million miles away from what I expect. It's more in my ears to the arrangements. I think these songs melodically could have come yeah. at any time. And really, it's only like a, over a period of, you know, whatever, two years or something like that. It, even for our heroes, the Beatles, within two years, they'd made developments, but it's not like they went from Please yeah. Please Me to Abbey Road within two years. So you can't expect... Yeah. Too much, but certainly it's more in the arrangements rather than songwriting differences to my ears, anyway. So I just want to sort of spend a few minutes talking about what we hear on these three albums. So I, I know you've got a bunch of thoughts. So I want to go backwards, as it were. As you've said, Pink Moon is a very stripped back album. It's not quite like listening to something like Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. He really does sound like he's in a very dark place. And this album lyrically is quite dark, but musically, as you've made the point, there's some sweet melodies on this. But two songs that really come to my mind are Parasite and Things Behind the Sun. Lifting the mask from a local town, feeling down Seeing the light in a station bar traveling far and sin. A line from Parasite. Take a look, you may see me on the ground. Uh, I can see the parasite of this town. Take a look, you may see me in dirt. I'm the parasite who hangs from your shirt. Yeah. I'm sure the people years down the track who are reading the lyrics were probably thinking, wow, he really does think very poorly of himself, doesn't he? Things behind the sun. Please beware of them that stare. They only smile to see you while you your time away. And true, you've seen what they have been. To win the earth won't seem worth your night or your day. Please beware of them that stare. They only smile to see why your time away. Once you've seen what they've been to in the earth, just won't seem worth a night or a day. It's easy for us to argue either way. No one really knows. I mean, we've been saying, yeah, it's probably his allegiance to the romantic poets. But either mm. way, it could have been a cry for help. But you know, this is the lines of someone who's very, very cynical. The first one, he's putting himself down. Things behind the sun, he's putting everyone around him down. He's talking about himself as a yeah. parasite, and he's talking about other people as parasites. I mean, that's just two examples. They're not exactly desperate pleas for help. 
but they could be read that way. I mean, Pink Moon was written, he was living in a North London bedsit, or is a bedsit or a very small flat studio, whatever you want to call it. And we don't know exactly when he wrote these songs, but we think, you know, they would have been written after the brighter later ones. That would make sense. And I, I think the circumstances in which they were recorded, the way he was then, you know, all the accounts that John Wood gives of being, uh, I don't think John Wood was ever scared of him because they actually actually had a nice relationship. John Wood was not a threat to him. That's the engineer, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pink Moon's a, a weird one. I don't find it a particularly depressing album, but when you put it together with the story and when you hear that, I mean, someone rocked up at his bedsit and he wouldn't answer the door and they actually looked in the window and he was literally just staring at the wall. He could have been doing that for hours. Again, could have been stoned if you get very stoned you might you might find yourself doing that but i think the song that really haunts me from that album is called place to be when i was young younger than before i never saw the truth hanging from the door and i was And he says, uh, when I was younger, younger than before. Sounds a bit like help, by the way. But uh, Yes, yes, it does, yes. I never saw the truth hanging from the door. Now I'm older, I see it face to face. And now I'm older, got to get up and clean the place. And then you get, now I'm darker than the deepest sea. Just hand me down, give me a place to be. And I was strong in the sun. So he is reflecting. I think he did sort of age psychologically. He sort of might have aged 10 years in, in three years, which is kind of what happened to the Beatles, really. But I think we won't talk about it now, I guess. But there were four songs he did uh, about six months before he died. And then you've got Black Eyed Dog. Black Eyed Dog, he called at my dog. That is a million miles away from this romantic poet living out this fatalistic. I mean, black-eyed dog is about depression because mm. you know Winston Churchill called it the black dog, and it, you know it's got the idea of the hellhound on my trail, which is Robert Johnson. Yes, Nick Drake did actually compare himself to Robert Johnson to friends. Oh, okay. I don't think I knew that. I don't think they mentioned that in the bio. That's interesting. That sort of works well with what you said before about his friends being amazed about how he quickly went from being a guitar beginner to having one of the most incredible guitar techniques of anyone I've heard. I think the thing that is constant in his music, and you're right, is the voice and the acoustic guitar, because he just never, it was only that very last session, which is after Pink Moon, where he was actually so disturbed, so sort of nervous, anxious, that that was the only time that he couldn't play the guitar and sing at the same time. He had to do them separately. You know, his friends were just like, this is unbelievable. Like, there are some very, very talented uh, YouTubers, in fact, there's one guy, I can't remember his name, but I watched a few of his videos. He's actually got the guitar down, absolutely, note for note. And he's got the tone almost perfect, but it's still not Drake. And his friends were like, it's just so strong, you know, the, the the sounds he's getting. And his voice is just lovely. And he was so consistent, you know, if they ever needed a few more takes. Apparently, he was just perfect every, pretty much every single time. And even when he was traumatized, or perhaps because he was traumatized, perhaps, you know, his only refuge was his performance. And John Wood, Joe Boy, they, they just all said you know he was just so consistent i think a guitarist would be able to tell you more or less what he was doing including my friend kester in madrid he would be able to tell you that much better than me but there's definitely a thing where there's a mystery to it and like how did he know about all those tunings again i, I don't know if they're tunings unique to him or they're sort of davy graham but yanch kind of tunings i honestly couldn't tell you but there's some slight mystery about how he was able to do that to me to me anyway i'll probably 
bring this up a little bit later on furthermore, but I love that you bring up people like David Graham and Bert Yanch because I've got song examples where I think their influence is certainly a big part of what he does. And I'll give examples about that. Back to the album before that, Brighter Later. I sort of felt like I probably should be talking about that after we talk about Five Leaves Left, but it does sort of seem fit to go backwards in a way. Brighter Later saw him working with a band, which was almost Mm. the antithesis of what he was doing on Five Leaves Left, which is not all about Robert Kirby's orchestrations, but there's not really anything in the way of a conventional rock band. And it's even hard to say that because it's not really rock music per se, but it is Mm. rock instrumentation. The opening cut on Brighter Later, just called Introduction, could have come off Five Leaves Left. Yes. So it's, it's almost like put the needle down. Okay, yep, there's a new Nick Drake album. But then you get to Hazy Jane 2 and you think, oh, my God. Hang brilliant. on, what, what's happened here? Horn section, for goodness sake. I mean, it's, 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 it's nowhere near psych music or the heavy sounds that were part of the 1970 music scene when this album came out, but it's still not what you're expecting from a Nick Drake album, presuming that you're one of the few hundred people who actually bought the first two Nick Drake albums. There's a song, Poor Boy, on the album, which I'm pretty sure you'd probably have a few things to say about <laughs> the lyrics yeah. of that. But that sound, once again, that's a sort of half jazz, half gospel sound because you've got P.P. Arnold and Doris Troy doing their Doris wonderful Troy. thing on that song. It's a million miles away from Five Leaves Left. But as you say, these are three, the three albums of three children. And it still does sound like Nick Drake, but it's just not what you're expecting. I got to say, though, that the one song in the album, it's a great song, but there's one part of it that drives me nuts. It's amazing that it gets on it because according to these books, nothing went on these albums that Nick didn't want to go on. He knew what he wanted. So the song At the Chime of a City Clock. You've got this saxophone, which comes in after the first verse. The saxophone sounds drunk. It sounds like something out of a really cheesy 1980s American movie or it's dark and you hear this sexy saxophone and he's sweating and she's sweating. And it just sounds so inappropriate on a Nick Drake song and I'm just surprised that it got there maybe Joe Boyd had his way and said Nick baby this will work trust me trust me no it's going there beneath the floors talk with neighbours only for games you play make people say you're a heavy 
With everything that's supposed to sound perfect and in its place, this just sounds like the guy's swirling. There's no order to it, which is not mm. necessarily a crime unto itself. But on a Nick Drake song, this doesn't work. And that saxophone just sounds so cheesy to my ears. I mean, his music was known from the first album as being Baroque. I mean, this is not a Baroque album mm. the second time later. It doesn't have the order of the first album. And once again, no crime. He goes to different places. But that saxophone is just so out of place. It doesn't doesn't belong there, not at all. When I think of a chime of a city clock, I mean, brighter later, again, what's so brilliant about his dis- his short discography is that essentially Five Leaves Left is the Cambridge album. So it's it's very pastoral. You know, we'll get to that, of course. Brighter Later is the London album. And Hazy Jane 2, when that kicks in, is effing brilliant. When that band kicks in, because that's basically Fairport Convention's rhythm section. Mm, the Dave Maddox. Drums. Yeah, I can't remember. The other guy's called Dave. I can't bring his name. Uh, Peg. Ah, Dave Peg. Dave Peg, yes, Dave Peg, yeah. Because I listened to the albums back to back yesterday. Yeah, you're right. Introduction, sort of one and a half minute instrumental, and it harks back to Five Leaves Left. It's almost like it's saying, here's a quick summary of Five Leaves Left, and now we're going to hit you with Hazy Jane 2, and it's completely different. But interestingly as well, when we get to the songs from Five Leaves Left, Saturday Sun, the last song, is a call forward to Brighter Later. I've always had an issue when there's bass, I the double bass or electric bass and no drums because it just seems to just sit there and it's got nothing to lock into so Saturday Sun I love I mean I love most of Five Leaves Left to be perfectly honest because finally you've got the bass and drums kicking in and I mean I love Brighter Later I think it's brilliant it's probably the most divisive because critics would call it sort of cocktail jazz at times <laughs> Well, this is that song at the time of a city clock. If you take off the saxophone, that accusation doesn't hold any weight. But with that saxophone, uh, it may be guilty. But then you've got John Cale, who, I mean, there's a brilliant story. John Cale was this sort of mad Welsh sort of artist, creative guy. And he heard, I think he was something to do with Ireland. I don't know if he was recording for them, but he was around he, he, there. He recorded for Ireland a few years later, mid-70s, maybe 74, 75. Uh, anyway, he must have been hanging around or something, and they played him some. And he loved Fly and uh, Northern Sky. And, I mean, Northern Sky was brilliant anyway, but they play it at the end of this Skin Too Few documentary, and it's over footage of Nick as a kid playing in the sea with his sister. I never felt magic crazy I never saw moons, knew the meaning of the sea. I never held emotion in the palm of my hand. I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree, but now you're here. And I mean, when it, whenever you see someone who's died as a kid and you kind of get that, that child innocence, it's always going to affect you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they play Northern Sky over it. It's just so perfect. So... Yeah, I get shivers thinking about that song. Mm. That was brilliant. Yeah, the issue maybe that we could come to at some point is how much of the augmentation was necessary. Because I would say on Five Leaves Left, some of it is brilliant. Robert Kirby basically hits it out of the park every time for me. But there's others that are not necessary. And Brighter Later, as you said, this was Joe Boyd's attempt to make Nick a star by giving them a commercial pop rock, let's call it, record. So, And the bass and drums work so well, and they're so brilliantly recorded. John Wood is some sort of genius of mic placement 
because typically they'd use i think four or five mics and even on pink moon pink moon is so strong and it's only acoustic guitar and it's something to do with it's a sort of warmth of sound it's an intimate sound but john wood and was such a good engineer and joe was a good producer but yeah i think one of the things that maybe led to nick's depression or spiraling was it we, we don't know exactly what happened but it was almost like a bit joe boyd said well let me just make you a star by making this a commercial record and then it didn't work so nick drake's like well i did it the way you wanted it and i haven't got the commercial i haven't got the career out of it so you know i've lost either way almost mm. but joe boyd and john wood both think it's nick's masterpiece you know and, and it is great i mean there's not there's hardly anything on it i don't like it's the three children thing as we've been saying that's can't sum it up better than that really and and yet it is interesting to sort of imagine i mean as we like to do where would he have gone if he'd either pulled himself together would he have necessarily written songs as wonderful as interesting would he have gone down a path of songs that were mediocre would he have gone from strength to strength i'd like to sort of think about someone like tim buckley who had a very short time on this earth but he put out was it eight or nine albums or something like that so there's a lot there and he went from maybe experimental folk recordings from the early days or folk rock recordings to putting out something incredibly sexy and erotic like greetings from la i know you know he doesn't understand and all you need is the warmth of his hand I like to wonder, would Nick Drake have put out something like that? What we know about his life doesn't seem to indicate so, but really, who can know? Let's all think just for a second, you, me, and the listeners. Let's imagine Nick Drake with the Sex Pistols. Uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't have happened, let's be honest. But <laughs> He might have gone down the road of funk like Tim Buckley did. Sexy R&B sort mm. of thing. It doesn't seem likely, but you never know. He might have gone somewhere completely different, is what I'm saying. And that would have been no better or no yeah. worse. It's just fascinating. It's good for conjecture to sort of wonder, what would he have done? And the fact is, he had these three albums, all stylistically or at least all arrangement-wise quite different, but very all still very Nick Drake. So it's conceivable that he would have said, I want to try something different at some stage if he wasn't suffering from depression. Yeah. So, And also presuming that Island Records would have had a success with him, or even if Island Records had let him go and there would have been some other company that said, they didn't know how to promote you, we know how to promote you, we know how to deal with you, you'll never have to do a gig, just stay in the studio. Yeah, well, the other thing I was going to say, it could have gone another way. If you think of someone like Ralph McTell or someone like say Robin Hitchcock I mean I don't know loads of their music but I get the impression that they've churned out 10 or 15 albums over the years and more or less stuck you know I mean Robin Hitchcock will tell you that he's essentially he, he called himself I think he was kidding but he's like a Bob Dylan Sid Barrett Beatles tribute act but all original songs and I think Ralph McTell someone who just thought well this is my idiom uh, again I don't want to judge because I don't know you know everyone knows Streets of London of course but a lot of people maybe wouldn't know too much other of his stuff but maybe the, he might have stuck to what 
what he knew. You know, if you take the last four recordings that I've mentioned a couple of times, he's going so within himself. And Pink Moon and those, they're much more honest and authentic lyrically, I think. Five Leaves Left is beautiful lyrically, but it's kind of Nick almost playing a role. It's not to say it's inauthentic, because as an artist, you can do anything you want. You know, I mean, Johnny Cash never spent a single night in jail. You know, he, he made up a biography. Bob Dylan made up a completely false biography of himself. You know, he's from a middle-class family, made himself out to be a hobo. So people are always doing that. There's, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with it, you know. I mean, Johnny Cash, the man in black, that's a complete invention. You know, Johnny Cash had a hard life, you might say. But one of the points I was going to make, I think, is I think with the music business, imagine, like, if... if you or I, we uh, wrote and recorded an album like Five Leaves Left. You know, we might think that people would be going, oh, you're so good. But the music business is just saying, well, where's the next one? And it's got to be better and it's got to have a new development, which Brighter Later did. And Joe Boyd gets credit for changing Nick's direction without making it not Nick Drake, as you perfectly correctly said. But the music business isn't going to keep patting you on the back. I mean, Five Leaves Left, it sold about 5,000 copies, it seems, and Brighter Later is probably about the same. But the music business is not interested in patting you on the back. It's like, oh, that was great, you know, didn't sell much because you didn't gig much. But yeah, where's the next one? So I think he got a bit, I was saying earlier, he got a bit swallowed up. He maybe was not the kind of person who could handle... Yeah, you can almost say you couldn't handle adult life, let's say. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna say, you know, there's times when when I've kind of preferred to retreat back into that adolescent dream rather than dealing with how harsh life is, basically. Probably now's a good time to talk a little bit more in detail about Robert Kirby himself, because this will actually lead us to the album, folks. Again, uh, then. <laughs> so Robert Kirby, for those who don't know, was a friend of Nick's from uh, his Cambridge days. They were mates for quite a long while already. And Robert Kirby came in as Nick's string arranger for those first two albums. I just wanted to sort of talk for a second about the importance of string arrangements because there are those who say they have no place in rock and roll and there are those who say, no, it's great augmentation under the right circumstances. And let's have a look for a moment at a couple of McCartney penned songs for the Beatles. So he was originally reluctant to put any strings on yesterday at George Martin's request, but George said, trust me, I'll come up with a arrangement it'll be a nice string quartet it'll be great so there's a beauty in that song because the strings are restrained it's a beautiful arrangement and it really lays strong argument that george martin really was the fifth beetle because he was a musician but then phil specter brought in an arrangement to to do the long and winding road against mccartney's mm. knowledge and it dwells in mantovani excess i look i'm not gonna lie to you i actually don't mind that arrangement but i will acknowledge that it is cheesy and schmaltzy and it reeks of that drippy mantovani style mm. Having string arrangements, it can either enhance a song or can completely kill a song. Robert Kirby, he knew Nick as a friend. He knew Nick's songs and he knew what was needed. In fact, there's only the one song on the album. I think it's Riverman that he didn't arrange because he didn't have the confidence in himself to actually do the arrangement. I listened to that song uh, so many times and you can say, oh yeah, it's a song in 5-4, but it is so complex, that song. Stylistically, in a way, the string arrangements on that song are consistent with everything that Robert Kirby did. I think it's a fellow called Harry Robinson who wrote the arrangement for that. Uh, you've got time signatures that sound like they're playing off each other. His guitar is playing in 5-4, but the strings and his vocals seem to be drifting in and out in whatever time they want to be doing. 
Gonna see the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the plan When you listen to it, it's a lot more complex than it casually sounds. So in a way, maybe I don't blame Robert Kirby for feeling frightened off. And Harry Robinson did a great arrangement on that song. But everything else that you hear on this album with the strings, it follows the less is more arrangement. You're not hearing lots of pizzicato and you're not hearing any complex sort of rhythmic devices that are used. It's pretty much the strings coming in as a whole and moving out as a whole. I like to sort of think of it as the ocean moving out and coming into shore. It's that sort of thing. It's noticeable, but it's not intrusive. Robert knew that the strength was in Nick's own songs and he wasn't going to take it over. And yet his arrangements, his string arrangements are hugely identifiable part of these songs. Yeah. Um, the most obvious example, well, I mean, there's so many obvious <laughs> examples, but the song that I know means a lot to you and we'll talk why mm. in a moment, but Way to Blue is the only song on the album where Nick isn't playing an instrument. It's just Nick's voice and Robert Kirby's string arrangement. Now, I have no classical training at all, but to me, the arrangement, it does sound very Baroque. Don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard a way to find the sun? Tell me all that you know. Show me what you have to show. There's this delicate dynamic balance between the sections where the strings are playing within and without Nick's voice. They start off the song sounding almost melodramatic, and that's good in this context. Mm. It sounds like from some brilliant British kitchen sink drama or something like that. And then the strings sort of, they pull back quite a lot. But then when he asks, if you know the way to blue the dynamics they come forward again it's just a thing of beauty and Robert Kirby showed these songs so much respect Drake's voice just always sounds vulnerable but being the song on the album where he can't hide behind a guitar or a Mm. piano or whatever that one particularly to my ears makes him sound the most vulnerable of anything on any three of his albums and despite how somber the melody is I see this more as Nick being in a peaceful place than in a dark place interesting Um, I really want your thoughts on this, and I know that you've got something special planned for the listener. <laughs> Run us through your thoughts, because I know that you have mm. your guitar there. So this will sound very different to the Nick Drake original, because you, unlike Nick, you will be playing the guitar. Before I do that, can I just comment on the Phil Spector stuff? Well, we've already had like a 2021 mix of Let It Be, but anyway, um, I actually like Long and Winding Road. I think Phil Spector's crime was obviously not telling Paul that he was going to do that, and essentially it came out, and Paul's like, oh, hang on, what happened to my song? But the break where it goes like, which Paul obviously plays in concert because he wants to, yeah, the audience want to hear the recorded version. Paul didn't come up with that break. And I think that break's lovely, but actually imagine the album and imagine the song. I think strings are completely unnecessary there. It's very treacly. I, I don't think, you know, imagine is fine with just piano, to be honest, bass and drums. Doesn't need anything else. Yeah, this song, Way to Blue, it's got a special place in my heart because it's the only one I can play. <laughs> 
Nick Drake did, does all these weird tunings, but on that Family Tree album that I was talking about earlier, he does a piano demo, and I heard it, and I thought, oh, that's pre- that sounds pretty easy. So it's actually quite easy chords. So I'll tell you what the chords are. I, I could play a bit of it if you mm, want. Please. Don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard the way to find the sun? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way to blue? So we're in E minor, and it's actually very conventional chords. It's essentially E minor, A minor, and B7. And when you're in the key of E minor, those are very logical chords. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, on the third line, the tell me, it goes to E major. And in a funny way, this sums up Nick Drake to a T. Because everything, when I think of Nick, I always think of juxtaposition. In Five Leaves Left, you've got these tragic lyrics, but way to blue aside, other songs are very uplifting. And then you've got minor and major. So it's never quite clear. Is this music depressing? Is this music uplifting? And when you put it together with the story, suddenly you've got way to blue. You know, it all sounds suddenly very tragic. Those strings do have a slightly tragic an air of tragedy to them. But I think that's putting it together with the Nick Drake story. And for me, you know, it's very difficult to be objective about anything, let's be honest. (laughs) But with me, Nick's music is so intertwined with his story because I find his story so fascinating, obviously in a a tragic way. uh, That's very interesting. And then you've got, I'll just give you the sort of bridge. Look through time, find your rhyme. Tell us what you find. We will wait at your gate, hoping like the blind. So he's using also uh, B sus4 and then B. So you've got this and then E sus4 to E. And it's hard to put into words what that brings to it, but it uh, I honestly couldn't give you an adjective that what it brings to it, but essentially that is a fairly conventional song. But a song you mentioned earlier, Things Behind the Sun, he does a really interesting thing where I was studying the lyrics the other day and the verse sounds a bit paranoid. Then the next verse is him almost giving advice to himself. So he does these very, very interesting things. I don't know how conscious they are, but when he, he's often singing as if he's giving advice to somebody, like, look through time, find your rhyme. But is he singing to himself or is he singing to someone else? So uh, it's a pretty interesting song. And then I, I'll just do the last verse, which is the same as the first one, musically. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Can you now recall all that you have known? Will you never fall when the light has flown? Tell me all that you may know. Show me all what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way to blue? So like I said, I think, to my knowledge, that's almost the only Nick Drake song that's got anything resembling normal chords and normal tuning. So, joking aside, that is one reason I like it. (laughs) That is the one song on the album that just has a standard guitar tuning. I think so. I haven't really studied, because I've always been too intimidated (laughs) to actually try. Honestly, I I could probably just about pull off a couple of the other ones, maybe if they've got standard tuning, but I've never been really into retuning my guitar. It just seems a bit annoying, because then you've got to tune 
tune it back again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and funnily enough, actually, Nick Drake at his concerts would often spend ages tuning the guitar. And if you imagine, you know, like Lagerlauts or whatever, not only are we not getting anything that's recognisable as a chorus, you also got this guy who's not looking at us and he's also continually retuning his guitar. So I think that worked against him live. Right. I think that just happened to Nick Drake a couple of times. He went to universities. I think folk clubs, he was all right. Probably people, you know, having a smoke smoke or whatever. Mm. And he did well at the Festival Hall back in Fairbot Convention, apparently. But I think it was the universities maybe did him in. Right. Let's talk about Nick as a guitar player. It seems to me that we speak a lot about Nick Drake as songwriter, as his tragic figure, uh, his whispery voice and all that sort of thing. But I don't know how much it's come into the conversation about him as guitar player. We mentioned names like Bert Yanch, Davy Graham, there's Martin Carthy, and obviously Richard Thompson from mm. this period of British folk music. And I'm sure you could come up with a ton more from the folk boom. You could also sort of think about maybe bluegrass guitarists from the US. And like he was influenced by Bob Dylan, but he's, who knows, he could have also been listening to mm. Doc Watson for all I know. You know, just that whole finger picking style. When I first picked up a guitar many, many years ago and uh, a friend of mine showed me rhythmically how to play Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Yeah. I was bloody proud of myself. I did the same, actually. Yeah, I learned it and I was I thought it's a real step up. Yeah, much better than what I normally play. Yeah. When you listen to the songs on any of the albums, Nick's playing, I don't know whether to say it blows that out of the water. Or, I mean, yeah, okay, I will say. Yeah, Nick's playing blows that out of the water. There's little complexities which you pick up and wanted to talk about three songs in particular, where finger-picking-wise, they're all very different, but they all show the beauty of what he's doing. Probably the most obvious song, and uh, there'll be a nice treat later on in the show for you listeners. Not coming from me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you've, you've had all your treats from me. That's the, only one I can... the most obvious song to cite for me to show his brilliance as a guitarist is Cello Song. The song I mentioned, that was my gateway. The first thing I heard of his, and I just fell in love with. There's other wonderful elements to this song. There's, the, well, the cello funnily enough the double bass courtesy of Danny Thompson and I I just will sort of take issue with you for one thing there because you said earlier on that having double bass but no drums drove you a little bit crazy but Mm. I think Danny Thompson in particular is the right bass player for someone like Nick Drake because he has a very heavy style of playing very Mm. rhythmic you can hear the thump you can hear the I'm a drummer so I would never say you don't need drums but really in a way Danny Thompson Thompson's playing is so percussive that maybe don't need drums on some of these songs. Having said that, of course, on cello song, we also get conga playing. So we do get some sort of traditional percussion. Yeah. To my ears, and I've mentioned Richard Thompson's name a few times, I think that this song was a direct influence on Richard Thompson, my favorite of his songs, and probably a lot of people's favorite Richard Thompson song is 1952, Vincent Black Lightning. And the reason why
why I yeah, think yeah. that there's a similarity. And I mean, of course, you could say Richard was influenced by American bluegrass guitarists as well. That'd be a fair call. But the connection, Richard Thompson has played on Nick's albums. And Richard Thompson is on the record as saying that he's a huge admirer of Nick as a guitar player, not just as a songwriter. And actually, Richard did perform live, Time Has Told Me. His bona fides as a Nick Drake admirer are definitely there. But for 1952 Vincent Black Lightning, and this is very subjective. When I listen to 1952 Vincent Black Lightning, the pattern that he's playing makes it sound like the motorbike riding along a country road, like an English country road. That's the picture I get in my head. It's not just because he's singing about it, but bum ba da ba bum bum ba da ba bum bum ba da ba. It's that ba da bum ba da ba ba da bum ba da ba ba da bum ba da ba 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 bum. And I won't do that again. But his guitar playing on that really does sound like a motorbike, the wheels going down a country road. That's the image I get in my head. And when we're listening to cello song. It's not quite the same rhythmic pattern, but it definitely sounds like something that Richard thought, oh, that is really, really good. I'm going to try variation mm. on that. I mean, Richard Thompson is a god amongst guitarists. He doesn't mm. need anyone to sort of tell him what to do. But like every great musician, they have their influences and they take a bit of this and they take a bit of that. And I've never heard him say as such, but to me, it sounds like he listened to cello song and thought, I've got to take that rhythm, adapt it and do something something with it. Both songs, their guitar parts to me are hypnotic, not just with Nick's playing, but the cello motif, which Nick actually hums in an early part of the song yeah, before, before the cello comes in and does it. Be- yeah. Beautiful motif. I like his humming as well. He's a good hummer, isn't he? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah oh, which is an undervalued part of music. People will learn how to hum. I wonder whether it's said anywhere in the books. I can't remember. Maybe in the Patrick Humphreys book it mentions, was he interested in Eastern music? Because that cello part, it, it's, it almost sounds like it's based on an Eastern scale i can't be quite sure but Ooh. it sounds like that to my ears so there's so much going on in this song but what i was wanting to talk about for you know a couple of minutes were the three songs that i really admired his guitar playing so there's that rolling down the country road sort of thing but do you have any thoughts about that is that something that you can do <laughs> on the guitar yes no, I mean, I, not at all okay no uh, let me just comment on a couple of those things with the bass I, I've just always been more of a fan of electric bass and double bass so and I, I just love when bass and drums kick in together I'm just a total sucker for it so that's just my prejudice coming out I'm definitely a big double ba- I mean I like the electric bass sure but double bass if there's one instrument I wish that someone would say here have a few thousand dollars go out and buy this off any instrument you want and learn it to be the double bass although yeah. having said that many years ago I knew this jazz double bass player and had a I couldn't even get a sound out of it. We're not talking about playing it. We're just trying to play. I couldn't get a decent sound out of it. So that is so difficult. Mm. Um, and I've got huge admiration for um, acoustic double bass players. Yeah, and going back to what I was saying earlier, when Hazy Jane 2 kicks in on the second album, and when Saturday Sun kicks in on this one, it was such a lovely surprise, because Saturday Sun's not one I... It's not definitely not one of the most famous songs. It's probably one of the, perhaps possibly the least famous song on this album. When it kicks in, it's lovely. But yeah, Jello's song is fantastic. There's nothing in the books about Eastern influence. 
influences, no. But you can imagine it, though. You know, you can imagine Nick smokes quite a bit. You probably heard about the Beatles going to India. I mean, he couldn't have possibly not heard about that. So that would have been in the news. So isn't well, there's nothing in the books, no. I mean, if I can nominate a song. Yes, please. You're absolutely right, that one. But three hours, guitar. Because at the end, he's got this really long outro and he just goes for it. Three hours from sundown. Hoping to keep the sun from his eyes East from the city And I was trying to think about how would I describe his playing? It's incredibly strong, but I can't think of it. It's not like a juggernaut. It's not like that. It's sort of delicately played, but there's a strength to it. There's a power. And I'll tell you what it is. It's hypnotic, and it's like a metronome, but in the best sense of the word. It's like a really powerful machine. That's how I'd describe it. That's the best way. This was one of my three picks, for example, right. of his great guitar playing. A note that I've got to put down here is that his playing, it's almost like the guitar playing is dancing. He's not playing like a strict rhythmic pattern over and over his fingers are sort of like I think I'll do this I think I'll do that it's all one chord essentially it's it's very drone like which also makes me think once again of eastern sounds Danny Thompson's playing is once again very percussive very rhythmic in its approach which is something that I've always loved about him and I first discovered him through Pentangle go back however many episodes and listen to our Pentangle episode to hear me rave on about Danny Thompson but the other thing is that Nick's guitar playing on this song really calls to my mind Bert Janch. That's also very percussive in its playing, and it's also not something that's regimented. I mean, he could be a very straight sort of regimented player in some aspects, but in this song, mm. it sounds like he doesn't know where his hands are going to take him. It's all just going to be based around this one chord. So there's Nick... Danny and this conga player, and I'm probably going to screw the name up, Rocky Zidzorno. The thing is, on this song, they all sound like they're doing their own thing independently. It's not cohesive in the usual sense of a performance, but it really does come together. They all know where to find each other. They're all swerving in and out around each other. They're not getting in each other's way, but it's not regimented. It's not strictly arranged in the traditional sense. The other song I want to compare this to is Bob Dylan's Masters of War. One chord and his vocal melody almost sounds like what Dylan's singing on Masters of War. Da 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 da. And it's not an identical ripoff or anything like that. But if someone were to say, yep, he definitely was listening to that song a lot. At the time he was writing mm. this, I am not surprised at all. Sure, a slight ripoff of Masters of War is "Working Class Hero" by John Lennon, but only the guitar, not the song. You know, who cares? You know, you get inspired by other people and you make it your own. Exactly. But my big takeaway from this song is how his fingers dance, and it's very much a Bernie yeah. thing. Someone described Nick as doing gigs as if he was in a recording studio, so he's hunched. And this works perfectly in recording studio. Everything was done live, by the way, or Nick's parts. So all these amazing guitar parts, he's also singing at the same time and doing it without too much trouble. Incredible. 
Yeah, yeah, amazing. But apparently when he played live, he would just play as if he was in a recording studio. So he'd be hunched up to the mic so it picks up the sound. You can't do that. You know, you've got to you've got to perform, even if you're Nick Drake, you know, even if you're that amazing. Not the king of showmanship. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Actually, one thing I wanted to tell you, actually, this album, it's interesting because it actually took nearly a year to record. There were a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that Nick was still a student. That's right, yeah. And a lot of people think three hours is relates to the, the time it took to get from Cambridge to London or the other way. Not sure if that's absolutely true, but also, <laughs> this is something I never understood. They said the Sound Technique Studios is where he recorded all his stuff. Apparently, they were installing an 8-track and they had a lot of problems, but would it take a year to install an 8-track? I'm not sure about that. And uh, with Robert Kirby, in fact, they'd already done some string arrangements, a guy called Richard Hewson, I think, who weirdly enough, sorry to go on a tangent, I was on Facebook and, and Richard Hewson's name turned up. How bizarre is that? Uh, Facebook knows everything, Anthony. Exactly, yeah. It's pretty scary. Anyway, he, t- he turned up on Facebook. <laughs> I might befriend him and say, sorry, they didn't use your string arrangements. But yeah, they Nick didn't like them. I think Nick Drake kind of knew what he wanted, even when he was very traumatized later on in his life. He, he still knew, but I think his problem later on in his life is he didn't know how to get it because you know, he couldn't face people and doing it the only thing it seems that he was in control of in his life was his songwriting and his music the rest of life was a mystery to him he didn't know how to handle it but that one thing that he could control was his songwriting and his guitar playing so i think hypnotic is a word isn't it it's like three hours and cello song it's like oh wow and you can imagine him just like with his eyes closed with his cans on just going for it. It's like like thinking almost, you know, this is the thing I was born to do. Right, exactly. The thing that I wrote, uh, my blog post, uh, which was inspired by reading a book, I kind of liken it to, I mean, a lot of people will tell you this, acoustic guitar is like is like having a best friend that doesn't ask anything of you and it's just this sort of mysterious thing that you can get all these amazing sounds out of if you're good enough. Obviously, he had a gift for songwriting, a great voice, but he had a special relationship with a guitar and he just took, go forward a couple of years, probably the only thing in his life that made any sense. You know? When the day is done Down to earth and sinks the sun Along with everything that was lost and won When the day is done When the day is done Hope so much your race will be all wrong The final song I wanted to mention in reference to his guitar playing is a great example of what he could do, but also very different from those two songs, and it's a lot simpler in its way, is Day Is Done. Oh, yes. Rhythmically, it's just a continuing series of quaver notes, but he does throw in the occasional embellishment just to keep things a little bit more interesting. But his playing Mm. is so beautiful and very cleanly picked. I love the simplicity, but there's also the wonderful imaginative string arrangement of Robert Kirby Mm. to offset the consistency of the guitar pattern that Nick plays. It's Kirby's strings that do something a little different after every verse. You know, it can be straight chord changes every bar or or a solo violin counter melody or the violins ascending as the guitar chords are descending. Very simple Mm. tricks of the trade, but that's what keeps things fresh in the song. And that's why I consider Robert Kirby an equal partner. And I I bet so did Nick. And I've got to say, just as a side thing, I'm a sucker 
the minor descending chord patterns, hello, while my guitar gently weeps. I tend to think very much of the George Harrison demo version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which showed up on Anthology 3 when I listened to this song. Absolutely, but yeah. Everything on this song just fits so much with our perception of Drake's fragile state of mind. You know, you sing, when the night is cold, some get by, but some get old, just to show life's not made of gold when the night is cold. Every verse is another example of how life can get dark. But it's, once again, not on the verge of life is completely fucked, throw me away now. It's not that sort of thing. Yeah. Look, we could argue either way. Is, is it just the poetry? And there's a strong argument for that. Yeah. Is it real or not? We, yeah, we, we yeah. don't know, but we're left with this beautiful piece of art. Essentially, I think the first line is, when the day is done, down to earth sinks the sun. So he's talking about one day ending and obviously the sun falling. So it's about that. But then you get, when the bird is flown, got no one to call your own, got no place to call your home, lost much sooner than you would have thought. Now the game's been fought. When the party's through, seems so very sad for you didn't do the things you meant to do and yeah if you fast forward three or four years that's exactly how he was feeling it's like i blew my chance what's intriguing as you said about this album as we've been saying is there are potential signposts but that we don't know if it's real like i mean northern sky sorry to go back to the second album but that's an imaginary love song because another thing about nick drake that probably should mention when if people are curious about what happened to him he, he seemed to never have a single relationship i mean he could have even died a virgin which again probably fits fits the romantic image very well doesn't it but this sort of virginal figure but i think it was very significant that i mean there's, there's rumors that there may have been a lady in paris and that's probably not the time to go into it now. But yeah, there's there's that element as well. These imaginary love songs, Northern Sky, had said from the second album. So it's hard to know, isn't it? But then, you know, in other songs, Time Has Told Me, A Troubled Cure for a Troubled Mind. But that's quite an upbeat song. And uh, can I just upset you for a second and potentially risk getting kicked off the show? No! <laughs> I, I think Richard Thompson is fantastic. Amazing guitarist. But that guitar and Time Has Told Me, there's nothing wrong with the playing. I just don't think it, it's necessary. Sorry. Time told me you came with the dawn so with no footprint a rose with no thorn that doesn't upset me at all the thing is on that <laughs> song that's Richard as session player I mean I don't think Rich, I mean, yeah. Richard was still in Fairport Convention at the time. Look, he'd certainly built up his chops and he had a very distinctive style, which I think, though, is pretty much as he went on into the 80s and onwards. The style that we know for him now is more from the 80s on, but he was still moving all over the place a little bit at that period. I see Richard's name as the guitarist on this song, and I'm thinking, well, it's it's got this nice little country it's very blues yeah it's very bluesy well, isn't more, it? more, more country to my ears it sounds more like he's playing a, a pedal steel than anything but it doesn't sound like richard yeah, thompson right. if you listen to the crowded house song sister madly the guitar break on that you listen to that you think yeah that's richard thompson that's he's very identifiable on that you listen to this this could be anyone and i'm not saying just because he's playing a lot more simpler than usual but it just doesn't sound anything like him. It's, but Nick said to him, uh, he, he's not having him on this session because he's Richard Thompson, guitar god. He's on this session because Joe Boyd 
is managing yeah. Fairport Convention and said um, he's in the island family, basically. Exactly. Hey, uh, you know, Rich, it's a bit of a hired gun on this case. He, yeah. He's just he's just a hired gun doing what Nick wants him to do. As we said before, Richard hugely admired Nick as a musician and as a songwriter. So there's no doubting any of that. But this sure. this is not a collaboration. So no, that doesn't get you kicked off the show. <laughs> there was another, another thing from the books actually from Patrick Humphrey's book. This is interesting. A lot of the Cambridge and Marlborough people uh, when they heard Five Leaves Left they actually a lot of them sort of said it was overproduced and that's just their opinion I mean not saying they're right but they'd heard these songs played by Nick on his own in Cambridge campfires or whatever campfires in France or Cambridge University rooms so it's interesting that they had that thought I don't necessarily agree but when I was listening today I can't tell you off the top of my head but there were some instruments I was thinking it's really good it really complements it and other ones I was feeling like perhaps they're adorning it for the sake of it so I get it's only opinion well know. but of course you know, several years later when Pink Moon comes out, they could say, ah, right, this one's for us. Yeah, so, exactly, yeah. who knows? I'm going to diverge again because that's what we like to do on this show. And I was sort of trying to think, who is a good contemporary of Nick Drake? I mean, it's all to the obvious things. People might say, well, other folky musicians like the ones that we've mentioned before, Davy Graham, Bert Janch, people who came maybe a few years before John him. Martin. John Martin. And they were mates. He would go over to his place for dinner or something like that. He'd go over his place for three days and not literally not talk and then just get up and leave. Yes. But that was later on, <laughs> not, not around this time. So it's quite incredible, yeah. But a musician who, I mean, not nothing's mentioned in the book so no reason to believe that the two of them ever met but a songwriter who we've actually spoken about on this show before is Bill Fay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bill at all I just know that one album what's that called something about reconstruction no, no, so he had two albums he's had a revival but his original two albums were the one self-titled Bill Fay, and the second one called Time of the Last Persecution I like making a comparison between the two of them I'm saying this as an outsider I don't know where you stand on this but Bill Fay and Nick Drake are both very English songwriters and Bill Fay released two albums wasn't heard of from for years and then he's had a rebirth but that's mm. another subject but these original two albums they're very good parallels to Five Leaves Left and Brighter Later because Bill Fay's original album has a lot of string arrangements and I'm not necessarily always saying that they're string arrangements that I care for I don't think that they're as good as the ones that Robert Kirby does, because these ones, are, mm. they're a little bit more over the top and not allowing Bill's actual songwriting to breathe. Spider or maggot Believe me songwriting is a lot of his lyrics could be very obtuse you weren't always sort of sure what he was getting at but they sound very very english they're not songs of romanticism of the dark side of life in fact some of his songs like be not so fearful really quite uplifting the other sort of common element i guess is that jeff tweedy of wilco years later championed them but oh yeah um, yeah yeah but yeah like like nick drake Faye's lyrics could lean a little to the obscure side but they're very different in their outlook and the second album time of the last persecution sees him working with a band love is in the kitchen release is in the eye i'm coming round to get you 
Though I cannot see what time Vacating the chair Cause I've had my share Christ is in the bathroom Looking any mirror on the wall there's nothing else in Belfay's back catalogue that sounds quite like some of the songs on Time of the Last Persecution, but it's apropos of nothing. But I just sort of thought that when you listen to a film podcast and they say, right, well, we're talking about this film, but what would be a good film to pair it with? But I, I'm mm. thinking that if you're listening to the Nick Drake albums and you're wondering, well, what else would I like to listen to? I don't want to listen to something that's a million miles away. Uh, I want to follow up and keep the same flow going. Then I'd definitely say that Bill Fay would be a perfect compliment and some of his songs which there's a great album called at the bottom of a grandfather clock which has a lot of demos and some songs that came out sounding very different to how they did on that original first bill fay album so there's some songs he never recorded mm. later on and some songs that he did but sound very very different those demos are just absolutely magnificent and they have more of a baroque mm. feel so there's this wider orchestral sound on the self-titled album but these uh, songs on the demos album almost have more of a really english very baroque feel to them so if yeah. you haven't sort of caught that before i'd highly recommend you go check out the music of bill fay as i said apropos of nothing but it just seemed to me like a nice compliment to nick drake's own music yeah, i think what's lovely about nick is that it's, it's not unfamiliar music by any means yeah he had contemporaries as so john martin all the people that we've already mentioned but there's just a magic i just love his voice he, he not only sounds english English, he actually sounds posh when he sings. <laughs> yes. But I think in some languages, actually, they use the word posh as a pejorative. I would say maybe in well-spoken. He, he sounds quite similar to the way he actually speaks, if you ever hear his spoken voice. And there's a little bit on uh, YouTube, there's like two minutes, I said, of him mm. coming home at five in the morning quite drunk, but not sounding raucously drunk. It's more like he just sounds even posher than he would be when he was sober. <laughs> kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it's a lovely English thing. I think he's just got that sort of ingredient in X so like I say what he's playing is probably not that alien to a master finger picking guitarist he's just adding this sort of strength I think to it I mean Paul Simon we haven't mentioned uh, in fact uh, thank you very much for recommending that history of rock music in 500 songs because I've been blown away by what I heard he did a great episode on Sound of Silence yes he did recently. yes yes and he, he actually points out three fairly distinct styles and I can play the Travis style that's the one that Donovan taught to John Lennon so you know Dear Prudence Julia etc look at me you know i can play that fairly well and that's very satisfying in the fingers that travis style is pretty much what bob dylan uses on don't think twice it's all right that's that sort of thing isn't it yeah i can sort of or maybe an, an adaptation of that yeah it's a sort of the bob dylan ones are kind of a it's that kind of thing which is slightly different to the, you know, Dear Prudence and all those. I think to sum up just that part of what you were saying, um, Nick's kind of familiar, but a little bit special at the same time. So I think that's one nice thing about him. He's familiar, and yet there's still no one quite like him. You were saying, like, you'd watched before, and I think I might have seen the same guy. There's some fellow on YouTube who's breaking down uh, Nick's guitar technique. 
mm. and you know, very nice and very academic, but he doesn't sound like Nick played. We, mm. we haven't sort of actually gone and mentioned anything about Nick's actual approach to singing. You've gone and said that he has a this very posh sounding voice, which was pretty much like yeah. his speaking voice. But I like that sort of breathy sort of approach to singing. The only other one who comes close, at least at that period, is Colin Blundstone from The Zombies. Oh, Although, yeah. mind you, Colin would maybe push it out a little bit more. Nick always sounds like he's trying to catch his breath there. I'd definitely say he's got a husky voice. I'd say in Brighter Later, his sort of voice sounds pretty similar to this, but Pink Moon, you can kind of hear that he's aged, that he's a bit more mature. I think this one, he, I, I can imagine him, I mean, you know, as musicians, we do this a lot, don't we? We channel, you know, when I was recording vocals for my albums in Madrid, I would often be channeling John Lennon. And I'm not trying to sound like John Lennon, but it's imagining John Lennon's there with you, doing this vocal with you, and it make, it gives you a kind of comfort. And I can imagine him just channeling the poets, you know, or channeling that spirit. So I think, yeah, it's quite husky, it's quite soft, but I just think it's a beautiful voice. Like I say, it's like a well-spoken voice. But in a in a good way. It's not a posh. Like I said, some people use posh as a sort of negative <laughs> thing. But it was def- definitely his speaking voice was incredibly posh. But uh, someone said he sounded like a sort of minor royal, like a minor member of the royal family. <laughs> so the final thing that I wanted to bring up in regards to this album are the bookends of the record. Most of these songs, you've gone and said, you can still feel uplifted from the melodies, but because he tended to write lyrically dark, you sort of wonder, was it songwriter's license or was it because that's just how his mind was working but the two songs on the album that see him attempting to go somewhere maybe slightly positive but even there he has his foot firmly planted in the dark side but there's a mixture there Mm. and and was the other reason why i wanted to bring up uh the these two songs is because they do feature musical heroes now one they've already gone and said and we've already gone and agreed time has told me time told me you're rarefied trouble cure for a troubled mind yeah I love this song it features Richard but it's it's Richard in Gun for Hire Oh, you don't want me to be a gun, that's fine. I'll do whatever you want. Um, mm. But this song, you know, it starts off, the opening line is, time has told me you're a rare find. Mm. And you think, oh, isn't that lovely? A troubled cure for a troubled mind. So he's having his cake and eating it there. You know, you're cure, but you're a troubled cure. And this could be a song about drug intake. But on the other hand, there's wonderful moments in lyrically where he's saying, leave the ways that are making you be what you really don't want to be. Leave the ways that are making you love what you really don't want to love. He's saying, if your life is not where it should be, then do something about it, which is very un-Nick Drake-like. That's one song on here that I see as it has its dark side. But of course, you can't bring the light without contrasting with the dark. Otherwise, you just, not everything is sunshine and lollipops. You know, the, the, mm. what makes a great song that is heading for the light is one that acknowledges the dark. So that's what that song does. The other song, and this may be a bit of a stretch to say that it's got any light in it, but I'm going to go there anyway. And it's a song you've already mentioned. It's Saturday Sun. Saturday Sun Came early one morning In the sky So 
Once again, I wanted to mention this once again because it's thematically similar. And this is a bookend. This is how the album starts and how the album ends. This is the other song that features a session musician who's a musical hero to me. And I've had on the show in the very early days, I was hugely excited, is Tristan Fry. So Tristan Fry, like Richard Thompson on the first song we were just discussing, he's pulling it back. What's he playing? Uh, sorry, Maurice. What's he playing on? Oh, so Tristan is playing both brushes on snare drum, uh, so drum kit and he's playing the marimba. He's trained as a tuned percussionist, timpani and tuned percussion. So the drum kit was not his first instrument. And in fact, he's a very, very humble guy. And he would probably say, I'm not really a drum kit player, but he is a drum kit player and a good one. But in this song, he's playing that late night jazz sort of three in the morning sort of feel. Unlike the saxophone in The Chiming of a City Clock, what he's playing on the marimba doesn't get in the way of what Nick's playing on the piano. It's simplicity and it really is less and more and it just makes me love Tristan even more. But the thing about why I wanted to talk about this song is it's the other only other instance where there's any level of positivity or mind you, you're led to think it's going to be positive and then at the end he says nah only kidding you life is horrible so he's he's singing saturday's sun came early one morning in a sky so clear and blue we're thinking ah okay you're ending the album on a positive note but of course by the end of the song he's singing but saturday's sun has turned to sunday's rain so sunday sat in the saturday sun and wept for a day gone by it's a song about missed opportunities Mm. i think oh you've cheated us well there's a little bit of a theme isn't it because what was the one we were quoting earlier day is done isn't it didn't do the things you wish you'd done or something like that and we don't know again we don't know if he's talking about himself but another interesting thing is that brighter later ends with a song called sunday and this ends with a song (laughs) called saturday Uh, i don't know how planned that is yeah you could say it's a little bit clunky saturday turning to sunday but he gets away with it i think he definitely definitely gets away as you said though those drums all the percussion and the bass is great and nick on piano is a brilliant bluesy piano it sort of makes me wonder i mean he wasn't quite ready to do this because it was probably more under Joe Boyd's insistence but on Brighter Later when he does Poor Boy and it sort of has a similar sort of jazzy feel but he's using the background vocals of P.P. Arnold and Doris Troy and you sort of wonder they could have worked on this song but they weren't up they weren't ready for that yet they weren't thinking even about that yet I'm not saying the song would have sounded better or worse but considering where he went with Poor Boy it sort of almost Mm. makes you wonder it would have been an interesting experiment regardless of whether they kept it or not it's certainly worth trying on this song and not necessarily on other songs it could have been an interesting experiment for saturday sun but i just sort of see that as a great bookend to this album those two songs which hint at positivity and time has told me is much more saying well yes life can be tricky but if you want to make it better go for it and saturday sun is saying well yeah. life has its positive moments but you know, really life is shit it's almost like saying hey you found the silver lining guess what i found the cloud it could be about the weather, though, as well, of course. It could be about the English weather. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, i just mop up the other songs that we haven't talked sure, about. Sure, sure. Go very for briefly. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've got Rhythm, Rhythm Man. Uh, I love some of this. Going to see the River Man. Going to tell him all I can about the plan for Lilac Time. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a few lyrics about sort of secrets and the secrets of the universe, almost. If he tells me all he knows about the way his river flows, I don't suppose it's meant for me. 
So there's loads of stuff in this on this album about rivers and trees and you know it's very sort of pastoral. And then I guess the other ones, Thoughts of Mary Jane's a little bit of a throwaway. Thoughts of Mary Jane, it's very, the way she sings and her brightly coloured rings make her the princess of the sky. Who can know what happens in her mind? Did she come from a strange world and leave her mind behind? So you've got Mary Jane is obviously marijuana, but you've also got this sort of goddess, this floaty kind of goddess that you can never quite reach. Man in a Shed is sort of the one that everyone kind of piles on nowadays and said, oh, it's not very good. Yeah, I think it kind of works as a something a little bit. It is truly lighter than all the others, I'd say. And it's sort of fun. Again, great guitar as well. And there's some lovely bluesy piano. Mm. I don't think that's Nick. That's somebody else. Yeah, I mean, overall, I, I just think it's a great album. And it, there definitely was development on the other two albums. Like I said, the third one's a bit more honest, I think. But this is not inauthentic. I think it's just, as you said earlier, it's, it's channeling. It's using an artistic license. And, you know, why not? Who cares? <laughs> don't have to write about yourself you know this is possibly an extension of himself it's like anyone who sings a song or writes a book does anything and might say this is me but it's not me all the time i can't reveal humans are complex creatures and oh well you know i'm gonna take this pessimism that i have and just turn it into something but you know what tomorrow night when i'm not recording i'll go down the pub and have a couple of lagers with you or something like that and we'll talk about some great film that we just watched you know it's it's not everything that songwriters write about is about them all the time so this could very well have been nick writing about himself but it's Mm. he had other aspects we're not one-dimensional so it's, it, it could be an act but it could be him but just not him 24 hours a day and just final thing i wanted to say you know coming back to your mm. original point early on in the show where you were saying that you know there's these songs that sound bright but lyrically dark and that's the mm. thing i say that this album is like the oral equivalent of a hug i it's strange that i feel mm-hmm. that i feel guilty about saying that this album is comfort food because you know, it, it does go to those dark places but it is the musical equivalent of a hug you listen to it and you feel comfortable and the string sections on way to blue it's just so gorgeous and these melodies they they i've already sort of mentioned the way they dance around and they skip around i mean maybe three hours is not necessarily as warm as anything else on the album but it's still magnificent to listen to i think it's it's the equivalent of real life there's darkness and there's light unfortunately history shows that the darkness was where he was headed for so everything that we talk about are not just we but you know nick drake fans in general Mm -hmm. uh tend to talk about in hindsight hindsight's a great informant but just taken Mm. as itself if you were listening to it at the time this is an album of beauty and of warmth i thought this is a musical equivalent of a warm hug i mean you can either fire up a joint and get the headphones out if that's your thing or you can sit in a field and listen to it the final thing i wanted to say was actually the title because this is quite funny this album has kind of again if you're into that it's got sort of spliffage you know (laughs) all around it but the title actually uh, what most people think the title is is that i'd never know because i've never bought a packet of rizzlers in my life in a packet of rizzlers you get a warning where you've got five rizzlers left and i think it actually back in those days actually said five leaves left i think don't know if it was exact words but i think it was but i was reading in uh, this book that, that the title may have actually come this is very interesting um from a 1907 short story called the last leaf and it's the story of a young painter who's dying of pneumonia and he prolongs his life by looking at the the leaves of an ivy tree or an ivy vine 
and the leaves gradually drop off. And they wow. say, oh, you know, there's five, yeah, there's five leaves left. When the last one falls, I'll be gone. Which is very interesting because that fits in with this kind of, like we're saying, this fatalistic poet. 100% print the legend when the truth is boring. And I mean, I, I don't know whether the Resolos story is true or not, but damn, that, that yeah. what you've just described there, I choose to believe that. Yeah, I love it. It's great, isn't it? I mean, I'd never heard of it, but I think it's probably a fairly well-known story. So he probably would have read that at university, quite possibly. closing stages of this program that finishes our conversation of Nick Drake and his Five Leaves Left album and pretty much we've gone back and forth across his career so hope uh, that if you've not mm. listened to any Nick Drake before that you're now tempted to go out and listen to it or if you're a long time fan go back out and listen to those albums again and hopefully our conversation has given you a new appreciation for uh, his life and his work. Now, before I sort of go about asking you to let the listeners know where it is that they can find your writing and your podcasts in general, just as the intro to this segment of the show, we heard an interpretation of Nick's music. Want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was the wonderful uh, Kester Jones and Melanie Lawrence, who are two of my friends that I made in Madrid. You could almost call them the Richard and Linda Thompson of Madrid. Don't know if they'd like that. <laughs> they are a couple, and uh, I don't know how much they collaborate musically but obviously they did for this special occasion but Kester was the producer of my albums and the guitarist pianist sometimes harmonica player he's a very talented chap and then Melanie's great as well she's played on a few of my songs and she plays violin and viola so they took the cello idea and then just transposed it so Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Kester's one of the few people I know who would have been able to pull off a Nick Drake guitar pattern and sing at the same time. Wow. Because it wasn't easy. (laughs) Uh, If you can provide me with that, I'll find a link. If his music is up online, I'll provide a link in the show notes to his stuff as well if uh, people want to check the two of them out. Listen to this conversation and thought, geez, that Anthony Rotuno, he he knows his shit. I want to hear more of what he has to say. Where can they find your podcast? Remind them of what your three podcasts are. Yes, well, I don't know. By the time this goes, I don't know if I'll be actually be in the Pantheon family, but I'm on. The, I'm on. I'm a second cousin at the moment. I'm on the, <laughs> on the fringes. So yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon, which is John Lennon, obviously, but some general Beatles, Life and Life Only, which sort of search for inner and outer truth, but very eclectic. It's about life, so yeah, it could be about anything. 
and film gold is films obviously uh, veering more towards older sort of 70s and then even back a bit further than that well the thing is I've, I've now got a website so it's Anthony without an H AnthonyRatuno.com I set it up a few months ago so it's got everything there it's got my blog so if you go to the blog on the website that will be the first one that comes up because it's the latest one and I did uh, it's about uh, 26 pages which isn't, isn't too much really it's quite a lot for a blog post but you know it's pretty readable I think you know I my writing style I don't get too heavy on things but it's a sort of overview of his life and I try and speculate a bit on may, what may have happened to him because uh, you know horrible for him but it is fascinating for us especially if you're interested in things like psychology and mental health to see what happened to Nick Drake and we still don't know what caused it you know it could have been drugs could have been lack of relationships that pushed him over the edge could have been the music business who the hell knows so that's on my website my website's got all my music as well I made three studio albums just like Nick that's why I'm not going to make a fourth <laughs> one ever <laughs> had two live albums and they were all produced by Kester who you heard earlier that's on my on my website and then all my podcasts all the links and everything it's all there in one place magnificent and thank you very much for having me on this has been fantastic my, my apologies I, for making you wait so long I, I thought I was organized better <laughs> than this but as I said at the start of the show I think you originally approached me back in February of 2020 I think it was that far back and there was a time admittedly I forgot and then when I did remember earlier Earlier on this year, uh, I'd already had like a few shows planned, and this is this is a disadvantage of only doing one show a month. But yeah. here we are; we've done it, and hopefully, it's not the last time that you're on the show. I'd love to have you back. Uh, this is oh, this, this has been absolutely terrific. So I'll just quickly talk about what is happening next month. That'll be December of 2021. Now, normally in the past, I've gone and done a year-end wrap-up. I, I go around to a bunch of uh, my musically-oriented friends and. And we do a segment talking about what their favorite first time listens were for that year. Now, I've already done a show sort of like that when we had the 10th anniversary specials back in July. Uh, I went round to all the usual suspects and asked them to talk about uh, some of their favorite albums released over the lifespan of Love That Album. So the last 10 years. And I sort of thought, well, I didn't really want to do another go around the traps type of show for the end of the, the year. So no year round wrap up. It'll just be another let's talk about an album type of show to finish off the year. But it's another album that I've been thinking for years. Geez, I really need to do a show on this. And I'm inviting back to the show two people I absolutely adore, guitarist from the Bondi Cigars just outside of Sydney, Mr. Shane Pacey, and wonderful music and film writer from, I think, Boston, Kerry Gately Fristo. Shane's been on a few shows. Kerry's done a couple of shows, but the three of us have done a trio show once before uh, where we talked about Marion Faithful and Broken English a couple of years ago. So I thought I needed to get the two of them back. And we're going to be talking about Joni Mitchell's album, Hegira, far and away my favorite Joni Mitchell album, which is a dangerous thing to say because I know a lot of people say blue and a lot of other people got you know, different thoughts about different albums. And I'll be honest with you in that I don't know her entire back catalog with the same depth that a lot of uh, diehard Joni Mitchell fans do. But this album is something really, really special to me. So uh, Shane and Kerry both said, yep, we want to be a part of that. So that's going to be December 2021's episode 153 of the show will be with Shane and Kerry. Absolutely looking forward to it. All the contact details, Joanne said them at the start of the show. Oh, they'll be in the show notes. Please listen to anything that you can in the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hopefully by the time this comes 
comes up, Anthony will have a show there or maybe it will be a little bit afterwards. Who knows? But over 80 shows in the Pantheon Network, there's going to be something that you'll like. And um, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, so until next month, look after yourselves, be nice to each other. Don't go being keyboard warriors and attacking people on social media. It's stupid. It's cruel. It's selfish. Just be nice to each other. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you on episode 153. All the best. Cheers. Have you seen the land living by the breeze? Can you understand? Lying among the trees Tell me all that you may know Show me what you have to show Tell us all today If you know the way to blue Look through time, find your rhyme, tell us what you find. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.